daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has stressed the need for greater efforts in grasping the strategic positioning of Xinjiang and in building a beautiful Xinjiang. China has cut its stamp duty on securities trading by half. Chinese Commerce Minister Wang Wentao has met with visiting U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo in Beijing. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has urged firmly grasping the strategic positioning of Xinjiang in the national overall national situation, and better building a beautiful Xinjiang in the process of pursuing Chinese modernization. Xi Jinping made the remarks when he was briefed in Urumqi about the work of the Party Committee and the government of Northwest China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, as well as the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. He demanded thorough, meticulous, concrete, and sustained efforts in developing a beautiful Xinjiang that is united, harmonious, prosperous, and culturally advanced. Xi Jinping was in Xinjiang after returning to China from the 15th BRICS summit and a state visit to South Africa. Now, for more on this, we're joined by Hamza Rifat Hossein. He is a news anchor in this news at Islamabad, Pakistan. Thank you, Hamza, for talking to us again. Yes. Hi. Thank you for having me. Now, how would you understand the strategic positioning of Xinjiang, as mentioned by Chinese President Xi Jinping? Well, I think、uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping visited Xinjiang after quite some time, and he actually believes that、uh, the western part of China is a conduit for regional connectivity, economic prosperity, and the absence of terrorism and nefarious,、um, you know, elements can, which can actually jeopardize the livelihoods of、uh, people from Xinjiang. And、uh, when you talk about strategic positioning, I think Xinjiang features heavily in the Belt and Road Initiative. It features heavily in the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Door as well, because there's this theory which is advocated by many Washington,、uh, many policy analysts in Washington, that、uh, China's Western development is an extremely important part of、uh, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor and the Belt and Road Initiative as well. So I think Xinjiang is strategically、um, placed as you know a conduit for economic prosperity as well as、um, you know a, a region which can actually result in an almost zero presence of terrorism and. And extremism within its boundaries. So that is what President Xi Jinping has been highlighting. It's all about the people of Xinjiang, and it's all about the prosperity and economic,、uh, you could say, uplifting of the people of Xinjiang.、Mm, indeed, very important economic, politically,、uh, etc. Well,、uh, let's see some of the details、um, mentioned by President Xi Jinping. He stressed that maintaining social stability is a top priority, and that the rule of law. Should be enhanced to build a solid legal foundation for enduring stability in Xinjiang. Xinjiang. Now, how do you see the background of these remarks? Well, I think first of all,、um, Chinese society is built on the rule of law. I think、mm-hmm. the rule of law reigns supreme. Uh, there's zero tolerance for nefarious activities, as I mentioned in my previous remarks as well. And I think law and order needs to,、uh, you know, it, it has to hail supreme,、uh, particularly in a region which has been、uh, witness to, you could say, extremist and terrorist attacks from, you know, elements such as the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, which has really tried to exploit local Uyghur sentiments、mm-hmm. uh, against the Chinese state. And in order for、um, China to actually nullify the potency of ETIM and groups such as, which are actually being supported, many of them have safe havens in Afghanistan and Central Asia. I think、uh, strengthening law and order and strengthening the criminal justice system is extremely important. I mean,、uh, a military solution to the conflict would not necessarily result in everlasting peace. But if there's a strong criminal justice system in place, then prosecutions can take place, accountability can actually take hold, and、uh, those involved in criminal activities can actually be prosecuted. And this, again, you know,、um, mm. it actually benefits the people of Xinjiang, so that they could actually work. 
towards economic prosperity in the absence of any insecurity uh, mm. that could actually plague them. Mm. We're talking about economic prosperity. Xi Jinping encouraged more efforts in developing a modern industrial system in Xinjiang that reflects uh, local characteristics and strengths. Now, how do you see the economic strengths of Xinjiang and uh, a little bit more on the importance of Xinjiang in the Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah, well, first of all, Xinjiang is considered to be the cotton belt of uh, you know the region. Mm. Uh, Xinjiang is known to be one of the agricultural powerhouses in Central Asia. And uh, the, you know, I was I was listening to Professor Zhang Weiwei mm. from Fudan University, who actually said that uh, Xinjiang is uh, you know if you take a look at the to- uh, economy in general, it actually outpaces many of the Central Asian republics mm. right now at this point in time. So it does have immense amount of significance as far as agricultural productivity is concerned. And uh, when you talk about the Belt and Road Initiative, Xinjiang, obviously Western China is relatively more impoverished than the rest of China. Mm. So I think President Xi Jinping does understand that uh, the adequate infrastructure, which could actually link Xinjiang to Central Asia, down to Gavadar port in Pakistan and ahead to Afghanistan and beyond to, um, you know, Eastern Asia, uh, sorry, Eastern Europe and Mm. down to the MENA region and the Middle East can result in a lot of prosperity for the people of Xinjiang because they'll be able to export the commodities as well as export their final agricultural produce to these uh, markets which do have a high demand for Chinese products. So I think this is where Xinjiang would always have that, um, you could say, legacy and that importance of ensuring that it can become an agricultural powerhouse. The other aspect of Xinjiang is its tourism potential. Mm. Obviously, when you look at Xinjiang, it has a beautiful landscape. Um, You know, Urumqi is a beautiful city uh, with, you know, modern skyscrapers. And you also have this uh, lovely skyline as well with their mountains and uh, people can actually go ahead with that. But because of the security situation, uh, Xinjiang has not been able to tap into its tourist, uh, its income and revenue from tourism. So that can also take place in the presence of law and order as well as the requisite infrastructure mm. to try and make sure that revenue can be generated. And once again, that would result in greater national integration with uh, China as a country and as a polity. And it would also result in greater prosperity for Xinjiang because uh, economic prosperity is linked with uh, a decline in terrorism and extremism. Uh, mm. Such nefarious groups will not be able to exploit that vacuum uh, if economic prosperity does take place. So that is where I feel Xinjiang is extremely important, both economically, politically, and in terms of the BRI. Mm, right. It's all for these people in Xinjiang. Now, Hamza, how do you see uh, accusations in recent years by some Western politicians regarding China's Xinjiang policy? Well, you see, the the problem with the Western narrative is that, and it's primarily an American narrative. It's also support, supported by you know certain segments in Europe as well. I think the greatest problem with the American narrative is that it uh, it comes from far right Republicans, and we're talking about um, you know people such as Mike Pompeo, mm-hmm. who went on to say that uh, you know there's a genocide which is taking place without providing any sort of evidence whatsoever. Uh, the UN Special Commissioner also visited Xinjiang recently, and she did not find any evidence which corroborates the Western claims mm-hmm. regarding forced labor or, you know, God forbid, genocide in Xinjiang. And uh, then she was quickly dismissed and she was also castigated and censured. So the Western allegations have this anti-China bias. There's no conspiracy theory to it. It does have an anti-China bias. Yes, there might be problems in Xinjiang, but problems cannot be, you know, it's, it's like inflating the entire problem and suddenly demonizing the Communist Party of China and claiming that they are you know, uh, mm. involved in forced in, in incarcerations, they're involved in forced labor, as you pointed out, or they're involved in so many different activities. The other point I would like to make is that the West tends to sideline the role that extremism has mm. played in, um, you know, uh, threatening strategic stability within uh, China. I think uh, many of the measures that have been taken by China are also necessary, given the fact that Xinjiang has been a rest of province. Mm. But when you look at the Western narrative, it's more about the Chinese government committing atrocities. Very little is spoken about uh, how extremist elements, such as the East Turkestan Islamic movement, have mm. been imposing, uh, you know, have been committing atrocities against the people of Xinjiang and the, uh, and the government of China. So 
I think this is where the Western allegation, uh, first of all, uh, these are fallacies. These do not, uh, these cannot be corroborated. There, there's no evidence to support that. But it is more to do with politics and anti-China animus. It's been raised time and time again mm-hmm. uh, at the United Nations. But the majority of countries, and the interesting thing, Kun, is that uh, the mm. majority of countries in the Muslim world mm. have actually supported China's claim. Truth is there are many Chinese Muslims who are living in China and they're living peacefully, and there are mosques over there, and there's no genocide taking place over there, and the Western narratives do not account for that. Mm. So this is where I feel that all of these narratives are a mere fallacy. Thank you. That was Hamza Rifat Hossein, news anchor in Pakistan. Coming up, China cuts its stamp duty on securities trading by half. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsk Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. China has cut its stamp duty on securities trading by half to activate the capital market and boost investor confidence. The cut that took effect on Monday is the country's first stamp duty cut since April 2008. Along with the move, the China Securities Regulatory Commission also rolled out measures to recover market confidence investing in listed companies. The CSRC said China will slow the pace of initial public offerings and further regulate share reductions by major stakeholders. Now for more, Zhao Yang spoke with Chen Jiahe, Chief, Chief Investment Officer at Nov Arcade Technologies. So, Jiahe, first of all, China cut the stamp duty on stock trading for the first time since 2008, and it's effective on Monday. So why is this move now, and what does this mean for the stock market? Well, when you look at the stock market, it has been basically fluctuating for the for the whole year. I mean, for the whole um, eight months of this year. Uh, but it actually rose a bit in the in the first few months, and later on it dropped back. So if you look for the past three to four months, the market has been pretty weak. But that uh, but if you look at the whole year, and if you look at the total return index, it offers something like two to three percent return. So so that's basically a flat fluctuating market. But that has been weak uh, in the past, uh, you know, two, uh, three to four months government is trying to stimulate you know the confidence of the market and then brought forward this uh, policy in order to stimulate the market it looks like the market has been reacting you know pretty positive mm. and china last time cut the uh, stamp duty in april 2008 so what's the market reaction to it at that time and what's the background and what do you expect for this time well, uh, if you talk about the time of 2008, that was a, you know, that was a history that that was a really remarkable history that everyone remembers. You know, I, I was working in as a management company back then, which is about well, 15 years ago. Uh, the, the market just bounced back. Uh, and the market increased about almost 10% for the whole day. So that was incredible. But that was under the background that the market dropped uh, very significantly from the height back in 2007. So that was a very, very large bear market back then. Okay, mm-hmm. so investors were uh, losing all of their confidence back 15 years ago at that critical moment when the global financial crisis was you know, beating many financial markets. So that was a very huge uh, rebound back then. But this time is quite different because the market is not uh, as bad as it was uh, that time. If you look for the first eight months of this year, uh, the Shanghai Composite Index has re- remained roughly the same as the end of last year. Uh, the total return index increased by about 2 to 3%. So this time it's quite different. So we have seen about 3% bounce back th- uh, this morning. Mm. And other measures announced by China's uh, securities regulator this time include uh, slowing the pace of IPOs and further regulation the major shareholders' share reduction. So what do all this mean for the active market? Well, this is actually, uh, from my point of view, uh, something even more important than the stamp tax because the stamp tax is a, is a one-off thing. You know, just reduce some of the... Uh, 
trading cost. That is all. I mean, but when you are investing, you are not really looking at the trading cost. I mean, the current stand uh, stamp tax is about 0.1%. And it's only charged one way when you sell it. When you buy it, you don't pay the stamp tax. Now it's cut into half. So that's about five uh, basis points uh, cost saving for investors. That, that's really not, not too much, you know, but, uh, because when you look at equity investment, you think about 10 or 15 or 20 percent return every year. So that's quite small. But uh, this limitation on the shareholder cutting, uh, if the company is not performing too good, uh, then the largest shareholder will be limited from selling their stocks, from, I would say, dumping their stocks in, into the market, has actually uh, moved the market forward by a very large extent that the dominant shareholder has to make sure the company is good in order to sell their companies, uh, company shares. So this actually brings much more energy to the market. Um, the dominant shareholders will be much more responsible for the stock prices, the dividends, the operation of company and everything. Personally, I think this is much more important than step taxing. And for China's stock market, Jiahe, how would the performance of the stock market affect investors' confidence and the overall economy in China? Well, if the stock market is brought uh, backward, you know, that that's really a very important thing for the economy because that, that means many things. I mean, uh, when the stock market goes upward, first of all, the stock buyers will be able to have more purchasing power. They will have more money. Uh, they will have more money to consume, to buy property, to go traveling, all these kind of things. Uh, and with this consumption action, the economy will be brought forward especially when China is making so much focus on the consumption economy. Also, when the stock market is more vivid, uh, you know, Companies would be easier to get the IPOs, uh, their refunding, all these kind of things. They would be a- able to collect more money for their business activities. So, I mean, an active and fair-valued stock market is vital to the, you know, the health of the economy. Mm. And you mentioned the whole economy, and you also mentioned the consumption economy. So, how would you explain the recent service consumption recovery or rebound of China? Well, if if you look at the overall consumption rebound this year, it has been around five five percent, somewhere around five percent. It's not, it's not very strong, but it's not very weak. But you have to separate this uh, consumption into two parts, as you mentioned. Uh, one part is the service consumption, the other part is the consumption that is related with the property market. For example, if you buy a new flat, you will need to uh, buy new air conditioner, new TV set, new sofa, all these kind of things. Uh, this is kind of consumption, but that's strongly linked with the real estate market. But the service consumption is not. Service consumption includes things like business service, you know, daily uh, consumption, these kind of things, restaurants, tourism, uh, filming, all these kind of things. So this kind of things is actually more important if you think about the potential of the consumption economy's growth. And this year, the service consumption has been increasing at a pretty dramatic um, speed. Well, partly because it was pretty bad last year because of the COVID. So the growth rate has been, I think it's around 20%. So that's quite remarkable, this growth rate. Mm. And when we take a look at the economy, we found that uh, from January to July, the value added of aerospace equipment manufacturing in the large-scale industries grew by over 20%. So how significant is the growth in the high-end manufacturing you know, industries for China's economic development? Well, if, if we talk about the growth of the China's per capita GDP from the current level, about 13,000 USD uh, to somewhere around uh, 30 to 40,000 uh, per capita USD, you know, I'm talking about the economic level of countries like South Korea, Japan, uh, which are very close neighbors of China, then that means China must be able to uh, have its own uh, high-end industries like, uh, you know, uh, plant building, which China has successfully been building the C919. Because if you have these kind of high-end industries, then it will bring a lot to the smaller industries surrounding it. So it's, that's a very long industrial chain. So if really China wants to grow from this current status to the economic status of countries like Japan, uh, then that's really, uh, you know, these kind of high-end industries is really necessary. Mm-hmm. And China has also been focusing on promoting the innovation and technological advancement, and the number of patent applications and grants increased significantly. So how does the emphasis on the innovation contribute to China's economic development? Yeah, I mean, if, if China wants to 
kind of increase by its per capita GDP by another one to 200 percent, as we are expecting, um, then that actually means we need more technology in our economy and as well as consumption. But also we need much more technology because we can't keep on focusing on the you know, previous uh, past that we have been working in the past three to four decades. That is um, heavy relying on infrastructure building, heavy relying on export, these kind of things. We have to use more technology in our own industries. So uh, well, if, you, if you look at the past few years, the country has been uh, you know, investing and stimulating quite a lot of investment in the high tech um, area. And many companies and PE, uh, private equity, you know, uh, venture capital uh, has also been investing a lot of money into it. Mm. And also talking about the property sector, Jiahe, the real estate market in China experienced a slight cooling down with both the housing sales and prices showing a moderate decline. So what are the potential impacts of the cooling down of the real estate market on the overall economy? And what measures have been taken to stabilize it? Well, if you, if you talk about the property market, uh, China has uh, for, for many years realized that its property market is overheating uh, and the country has been doing a lot of things in the preparation for that. Uh, back in 2015, if you remember, that's about eight years ago, China has started to get the property loans away from its banking system. So if, if you look at the bank uh, bank's financial statement, uh, their proportion of loan made to property developers has been reducing in the past seven to eight years. So it's a lot of preparations has, has been done. And uh, the derivatives connected with real estate developers and property sectors uh, have actually been banned uh, from the financial system. So it's many things that has been done. I mean, this is something very different from what we have seen in 2008 global financial crisis that when the property price in the U.S. was too expensive, people were, you know, hurrying to issue the financial derivatives and sell them to, uh, you know, large investment banks and companies around the world uh, in order to make an instant profit. But that was something wrong, you know, that, that's been called the weapon of mass destruction in financial industry. And China has actually been doing the uh, the counter thing of this, partly because we have learned a lot of lessons from 2008. Mm. So if you talk about the property um, market, it is cooling down. But if you talk about the preparation of the financial market, it is pretty fully prepared. Mm. And how do you see China's internal and external environment for the rest of the year, Jiahe? Will the FDI or foreign direct investment continue to flow in? Well, if, if you look about the overall um, global economy, then China is really facing a tough environment at this moment, as many countries that is having a, a strong export uh, sector. If, if, you, if you look at the export of major exporters around the world, you know, South Korea, India, Vietnam, Malaysia, and China, uh, our export has uh, been falling by a range about uh, 8 to 20 percent. So if you, if you compare China with other countries, then we're doing pretty good. But anyway, uh, the overall picture for the export is pretty tough. And if you talk about investments, that's something different because investment sometimes does not, you know, uh, you know, does not come um, in the same pace with export. Uh, sometimes when the country's GDP growth is picking up by very rapid uh, speed, the investment might come in. So th whether the FDI will continue to flow in, whether there will be a lot of fund flowing to China in the rest of the year, really uh, also in, in, in next year, really depends on how China's um, overall economy looks like. If we have a very promising economy uh, and some very promising industries, then the fund will come by itself. That was Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Dom Arcade Technologies, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. More to come, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo visits Beijing. For further discussions, follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. We'll be right back after a short break. Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. 
So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome. I'm Elaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Chinese Commerce Minister Wang Wentao has met with U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo in Beijing on Monday. Gina Raimondo is on a visit to China from August 27th to 30th. An earlier statement from China's Commerce Ministry said China looks forward to in-depth discussions on resolving economic and trade differences and promoting practical cooperation during Raimondo's visit. In a discussion with Raimondo in Washington ahead of visit, Chinese ambassador to the United States Xie Feng said, "China and the U.S. are in the same boat, and no one can stay aloof." Now, for more, we're joined by Professor Zhu Feng. He is dean and professor of international studies at Nanjing University. Thank you, Professor Zhu, for、uh, talking to us again. Thank you for inviting me. Now, first up, Professor. In general, what would be your expectation of this visit by Raimondo? What might be achieved by the two sides? Yeah, I think her visit, of course, is is very significant because it's an extension of a resumed high level of a contact between both sides since the、uh, Secretary of State.、Uh, You know,、uh, visited China、uh, last、uh, June. On the other hand, then what we see, U.S.-China relations is really hitting a big, you know, the wall because Americans, you know,、uh, decoupling strategy also、uh, had a, had a very, very, you know,、uh, serious、uh, heart attack. So they want use some sort of a new word of the. De-risking rather than、uh, decoupling,、mm. but the problem is how the U.S. could re-examine its China approach、mm. based on some sort of、uh, we say、uh, interdependence and mutual benefits. So it's a still big question. That's why I think the、um, Secretary of Commerce, you know, Lamando's you know visit Beijing, of course, is a big. Window of opportunity for both governments to re-examine how their relations could be resumed in a constructive manner.、Mm. Well, <clears throat> Professor Zhu,、uh, prior to the meetings, Raimondo said that she will seek to quote unquote protect what we must and promote where we can, as、uh, she discusses economic、uh, and commercial relations with her Chinese counterparts. How do you think the U.S. side will approach current critical U.S.-China economic trade issues? Yeah, I think it's a good question. It's also a big concern for Chinese side. We、mm-hmm. also know since the、uh, former U.S. government Trump administration just、uh, launched a very reckless, you know,、uh, uh, war of trade、mm-hmm. against China. Then it's also almost you know、uh, five years past. But the problem is, since the Biden administration took the office, there is no some sort of a new, you know, signals that、uh, Washington、uh, would like to, you know, re-examine some sort of uh, uh, basic, you know, approach to get the、uh, mutual trading relations back to the sound track.、Mm. So therefore, I think the from the Chinese perspective, we consider the war of trade is not just some sort of The result of Americans hate them, but it's also some. We say it's a mutual, you know, harmful, mutually harmful, you know, the, 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 some sort of such a hard, you know, hit to the both sides.、Mm-hmm. So we are very concerned. The Biden administration sooner or later will come to the, you know, the conclusion. So trade war should be terminated on the both sides. Some sort of a new consensus and then reciprocity. So、that's why the、uh, Secretary Raimondo's visit to Beijing. I really hope it could just have they、um, get the、uh, some sort of a new page lift 
before both sides could just getting into some sort of uh, serious discussion of how the trade war could be terminated. Mm, indeed, that certainly is the hope. Um, a critical issue, you know, in the current China-U.S. economic relations is uh, U.S. Uh, technological con- uh, controls on U.S. exports to China. Uh, Raimondo told U.S. press before she landed in Beijing that she would explain that technology controls on U.S. exports to China are intended to be narrowly targeted against a small range of items to protect American national interest. Uh, she also said that the U.S., far from seeking to in- disengage with China, wants to maintain a robust economic relationship. Now, Professor Zhu, how do you understand her words and how do you think her messages will be received by the Chinese side? Yeah. Interestingly, I think uh, uh, Secretary Lomondo's you know, comments sounds uh, some sort of uh, positive, you know, uh, from the uh, points of just a, a narrow extension of uh, some sort of, we say, such a, a high-tech, you know, the wars immediately China. But the problem is how her, you know, the comments could be really resting on some sort of a solid ground mm. where the Biden administration could just uh, care more about reciprocity and the inter- interdependence, as I mentioned, between the both sides. Yes, the Mondo say, yeah, well, why not just uh, have to extend some sort of the scope of some uh, high-tech war vis-a-vis China. But the problem is how, he, how she could just, uh, how say, we just uh, uh, obtain some sort of a Chinese you know, um, confidence. Mm. On the other thing, in one way, her comments also could just uh, regain the positive, you know, uh, reactions from Beijing. Mm. So a lot of uh, suspicious are still, you know, hanging on. <laughs> so therefore, I see, yeah, her visit also is uh, un- just answer the test for how the U.S., you know, government just uh, has a handle such a very complicated and sophisticated, you know, the high-tech interactions between the both sides. Mm, right. Now, Professor Zhu, Raimondo is the third U.S. cabinet secretary visiting Beijing this summer, following visits by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. So uh, how do you see the importance of these visits? And w- in general, what do you think has been achieved? Yes. First of all, I have to say, Romano's visit to Beijing, as I mentioned, is a very positive extension of uh, uh, resumed the high-level contacts and interactions between Beijing and Washington. So that kind of uh, uh, intense contacts and engagement, of course, was just to offer some sort of uh, positive you know, the, uh, methodology for both sides to re-examine their uh, mutual concerns. But the problem is how sincere mm. like, by the administration could be in some sort of a, such a, a, a frequency of high-level contacts rather than you know, just some sort of a superficial, you know, the, the, the performance. So then I uh, think the Chinese concern remain very formal. So that's why I, I really hope uh, Secretary Lumondo's visit to Beijing could not just uh, have to reduce the China concern, but also could just uh, have to lay out some sort of a new way for both sides raise the up their positive interactions and engagement. Mm, certainly, this is uh, one of the very important uh, visits by foreign uh, foreign policymakers uh, in recent days to China, and we'll certainly keep an eye on that. Thank you. That was Zhu Feng, Dean and Professor of International Studies at Nanjing University. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. 
I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Libya's prime minister has suspended Foreign Minister Neja Magush on Sunday and referred her for investigation. The move came after Israel said its foreign minister Ali Cohen had met the Libyan foreign minister in the Italian capital of Rome last week, despite the countries not having formal relations. Israel's foreign ministry said the meeting was aimed at examining possibilities for cooperation and relations between the countries and the preservation of the heritage of the Libyan Jewish community. In its latest statement, the Libyan foreign ministry said Mangush had rejected a meeting with representatives of Israel and that what had occurred was, quote-unquote, an unprepared casual encounter during a meeting at Italy's foreign affairs ministry. Now, for more, we're joined by Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thank you, Professor Wang, for talking to us again. My pleasure again. Now, uh, Professor, is the move by the Libyan Prime Minister to suspend Libyan Foreign Minister surprising to you? Well, I think I think they're both. They were both a surprise. Because on the one hand, the, the surprise earlier that the Foreign Minister of Libya met with the Israeli Foreign Minister Ali Cohen, uh, because we know that uh, there were still no formal diplomatic relations between Libya and Israel, and also the, there were still a lot of uh, hostile statements before the meeting, before this meeting against each other that has been lasted for decades. So, uh, so it's actually the meeting first, uh, first of all, uh, uh, surprised me, and and then then. I mean, further surprised me that it's so harsh and so fast moved from the Libyan government that they suspend the uh, suspend the, the, the job of uh, of the Mangush and also uh, try to investigate, try to launch the new investigation against uh, their foreign minister just for this kind of uh, the latest uh, meeting with Ali Cohen, the foreign minister of Israel. So I think both incidents mm. and the both uh, very latest news also surprised they both surprised me. Mm. It seemed that, Dr. Wang, do you think Israel want the meeting? If yes, why did it want the meeting in the first place? What did it hope to achieve? I think Israel uh, wants more because, uh, because of, uh, from the perspective of Israel, uh, they, uh, they hope to establish uh, more diplomatic relations with more uh, Arab states Mm. Uh, uh, as soon as possible, because uh, we know that in 2020, four Arabs, four new Arab states, they uh, normalized ties with Israel and uh, established diplomatic relations: the UAE, the, the Bahrain, the, the Morocco, and Sudan. So, so it's a very uh, big diplomatic victory for the Israeli leaders, and also for the for the for the now the Israeli leaders, Benjamin Netanyahu. He hopes to push uh, to encourage more Arab states to. Uh, establish the diplomatic relations with Israel, so that could be uh, become so that could become the very political asset for him in the political arena uh, inside Israel. So that mm-hmm. is why uh, Israel wants this kind of the meeting. This suggested a very uh, big historic breakthrough between the two sides, Israel and Libya, and also the suggested a very possible uh, normalization of the diplomatic relations between two countries. But now that what we have already witnessed. There's still strong opposition forces inside Libya. So I think uh, we might uh, need to wait for long term before the diplomatic relations between the two countries finally established. Mm. Dr. Wang, could you please explain to us why Libya was particularly important in Israel's rapprochement with the Arab world? Uh, Libya, uh, actually, Libya's importance is not so big, mm. not so great, because uh, Libya is a country still in the status of internal crisis, and sometimes this kind of crisis could be uh, escalated into uh, internal uh, conflicts inside the country. Uh, so that, on the one hand, uh, weakened the Libyan's uh, voice in the Arab states because we know that the Libya has no has very little influence uh, over other Arab states. That's just due to its, uh, its internal 
its internal uh, problems. Mm. But on the other hand, it also gives the Israel the opportunities to exert influence uh, over uh, Libya because we know that the, uh, in the history, Libya was also the very important home for a lot of Jews in the North Africa. Mm. Uh, and also after the war uh, in uh, 1948, when the first uh, Israel-Arab war erupted, after the war erupted, a lot of the, the, the Jews in the Arab states, especially in the North Africa, they tried to they, they started to move to Israel and leave uh, and left their homes in Libya. But there was still a lot of a Jewish heritage there. So, uh, so establishing the, the diplomatic relations with Libya would give the very, very new uh, support and the popularity uh, of the Israeli government at home. So that is why uh, the Israeli government feels that it has become an opportunity to use the weakness or the, to use the internal crisis of the Libya uh, political uh, uh, arena mm-hmm. to, to facilitate the, the process of the diplomatic relations establishment. But now we see that uh, although Libya has their own problem, but this process is not so... Uh, so positive. There's still a lot of oppression and obstacles inside the country. Mm. Well, uh, let's see the the statement, the latest statement from the Libyan Foreign Ministry. It said Mangush had rejected a meeting with representatives of Israel, and that what occurred in Rome was an unprepared, casual encounter during a meeting at Italy's Foreign Affairs Ministry. Doctor Wang, how should we interpret these remarks? I think uh, um, I think I think that the foreign minister, uh, the Mangush, uh, has already felt the pressure from uh, from uh, from Libyan government as well as from the Libyan people, uh, because we have to know that the Libyan Ozu it is not uh, it is not a state with the common with the shared border with Israel, but in history for decades I mean, for for nearly actually. Uh, more than half a century that the Libyan uh, Libya was one and still is the one of the very uh, country uh, hosted the very very or even the very most uh, hostile statement against Israel. Uh, so under this kind of uh, social circumstances and social opinion, it is very hard for any uh, Libyan uh, politician to try to uh, to establish connections with Israeli uh, politicians, especially in the very public uh, public arena, uh, in, in the diplomatic arena, in the multilateral uh, diplomatic arena hosted by Italy. And meanwhile, we have to know that uh, uh, maybe, I mean, maybe the Mangush remarks was true, was true, because mm. in the very multilateral uh, meeting arena, uh, scenario. It's, 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 I, I think sometimes and some photos or some kind of the discussions and sometimes the talks between the two different uh, representatives, the diplomatic representatives, might be uh, exaggerated into the status uh, that it should not be. For example, in, 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 maybe against this kind of the backdrop that mm-hmm. uh, Mangush might talk to, to uh, Ali Cohen, the, the Israeli foreign minister, uh, maybe just to exchange ideas or maybe exchange some words, but then some someone's interpreted that okay now they, they hope to establish new meetings, establish new diplomatic channels. That is a big crime or that is a very big thing. That is a historic moment. So I, I think the Mangush might also defend that try to defend uh, mm-hmm. herself. But no matter what happened, I think uh, I think that we uh, we have to also suggest again that it suggested the very obstacles and the problems that are still there that uh, uh, obstruct the the peace process or the normalization process between the two countries, Libya and Israel. Mm. Doctor Wang, how do you see things unfold going forward? Will Mangush be able to keep her post, and how do you think the Israel policy of the current Libyan government uh, will unfold? Uh, I think uh, I think on the one hand, Mangush might might lose her job uh, because as the, the, there has already uh, become there has already uh, uh, been a new acting foreign minister of Libya that has already been nominated. So might uh, Mangush might lose her job. And on the other hand, that uh, the Israelis' um, uh, interest and the Israeli willingness to facilitated the, uh, to, to the establishment of the new diplomatic relations with other Arab states also might face the obstacle and challenges because when this news comes to the back to the country, people will think, okay, we have already tried our best, but Arab states, some Arab states still don't understand us. Mm-hmm. So there were new crises and the problem inside the country uh, over the over the mo- motivations of the establishment of new diplomatic relations with other Arab states. So 
a lot of challenges ahead. We have to keep patient, and、mm. we have to wait.、Mm. Thank you, Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. This is World Today. Stay with us. As one of CGTN Radio's most popular programs, World Today provides listeners with a strong mix of international news and business. It delivers in-depth analysis of current affairs and one-on-one interviews, bringing you the stories behind the news—not just what's happening, but why. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. A new round of negotiations between Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan has kicked off over the weekend in Cairo over the long-running dispute regarding the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Egyptian Minister of Water Resources and Irrigation Hanis Willem stressed the necessity of reaching a binding legal agreement on the rules for filling and operating the dam built in Ethiopia's section of the Nile River. The Egyptian minister said the, the agreement should take into account the interests and concerns of the three countries. Ethiopia started to build the dam in 2011 and expects the giant hydropower project to generate more than 6,000 megawatts of electricity. Egypt and Sudan are worried that this might reduce their access to Nile water. For more, we're joined by Dr. He Wenping, Africa expert and senior research fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you, Dr. He. It's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me.、Uh, now, Dr. He, <coughs> the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is built in Ethiopia's section of the Nile River. Help us understand the policy of the Ethiopian government. Why did it want to build the dam in the first place? Well, Ethiopia.、Uh Government wants to build the dam for quite a long time. Of course, the fundamental reason uh, is to uh, to overcome the shortage of the power、uh, for the entire country. But、uh, in the in the very very earlier time,、uh, they are、uh, they had、uh, quite afraid of those against the opinion coming from、uh, downstream,、uh, the Nile River, that is、uh, Egyptian government's opinion and also Sudanese government's opinion. Because both country,、uh, they also,、uh, you know, have their rights for using the Nile River water.、Uh, but you know, in, in the year 2011, and then Ethiopia government now、uh, made action、uh, to build the dam. That was because、uh, we all know 2011, the Arabic so-called Arabic Spring,、uh, that、uh, you know, revolution all the way taken place from、uh, Tunisia and then to the Egypt and then to the Libya. So Egypt、uh, government themselves. Like Hosni Mubarak has been chopped down, and then、uh, come up with the Muslim Brotherhood, and then Muslim Brotherhood has been down, chopped down again, and then came up with the、uh, President Sisi. So all those times,、uh, Egyptian government now was busy、uh, with themselves. This、uh, uh, come and go, come and go. So they have、uh, no such a, like a power、uh, to handle all those issues outside of Egypt. So Ethiopia government thought. That was the golden time for them、uh, to build this,、uh, uh, you know, called、uh, Renaissance Dam,、mm. uh, because、e- Egypt now、uh, cannot has no capacity、uh, to make a, a big prevention for them. So that is why、uh, these things happening、uh, in the year 2011, and all the way now come up to today.、Mm. Um, Doctor He, the, are the concerns of Egypt and Sudan valid to you? Doctor Ho.、Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think the Egypt and Sudan, of course, as we said before, they are downstream of this Nile River. So their biggest concern is、uh, if uh, e- e- Ethiopia、uh, side build a big dam, and then definitely that that will reduce、uh, those water flow、uh, to the downstream countries. Because、uh, we all know,、uh, no matter、uh, you know Ethiopia,、uh, like、uh, Egypt or Sudan, or even all entire North Africa. And the Middle East area, the shortage of the water is a you know widespreading issue.、Uh, even in Middle East country, the water price、uh, even much higher than those oil price. So uh, if uh, the Nile River,、uh, Egyptian people, ah,、uh, you see, this is a one hundred million people all rely on ah、uh, this um it's called the, the Mother River. So if、uh, the water volume now getting reduced、uh, day by day、uh, because of this dam building. 
So definitely, uh, that will influence their interest. That's why uh, Egypt and Sudan both are downstream of the Nile River. Uh, that's why they have a great concern, and uh, they are fully against uh, this idea of building dams. Well, uh, Dr. He, the, the three countries reached a principal agreement back in 2015. Now, uh, what has caused the latest dispute among them? Yes, uh, the latest dispute comes from uh, there's a stealing uh, the water in, and also uh, by what uh, with uh, with or without consensus uh, come from those three countries. Because in the year 2015. Uh, eventually, after so many rounds of those negotiations and also the pressure coming from outside uh, some uh, players, uh, eventually those three countries uh, reached the agreement saying, all right, since the dam already built up and the uh, Ethiopia side yeah, spent a lot of money, like uh, almost, uh, you know, billions, billions, uh, uh, total is almost, uh, uh, I think it's uh, 400, uh, like uh, uh, 4.2 billion. Uh, those dollars, so made a lot of effort. So you cannot uh, push them back to the zero point. Uh, the mm. dam already built there. So the concern is uh, the water fill in uh, in the dam and uh, to what level and in what way, uh, what kind of step, uh, you know, step, step forward. So you need to make a fully consideration of mm. the downstream country's concern. So at least the 2015, they have reached this consensus saying uh, by when and uh, how much water will be filled in, and at least you should share and also reach consensus from all the three countries. But later on, uh, because Ethiopia, uh, in the year like uh, 2020, uh, they made fill in the water by themselves, unilaterally, uh, not reach the consensus, uh, get uh, any opinion from another two. Uh, that's why uh, has caused the latest dispute. Mm. Uh, in 30 seconds, Dr. He, Egypt and uh, Sudan hope to reach a binding legal agreement, uh, you know, in the latest uh, negotiations. How do you see the prospect of that? I think it is uh, quite uh, possible uh, mm-hmm. now uh, to reach such a new agreement uh, because now the situation is totally different. Even recently, we know that Egypt and Ethiopia, both of the uh, you know, countries joined the BRICS, uh, this, uh, you know, the mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, from uh, next year, the first day, they will fully become the member of the BRICS. So which means now their relationship has, uh, you know, already turned over to the new chapter. Uh, no mm. longer that eyes on eyes. So they have a good relation, similar like Iran and Saudi Arabia. So with this uh, good momentum, so I think uh, uh, coming from the BRICS, uh, there's right. also the mechanism, mm. probably uh, it's a great hope to reach a new agreement. Thank you. That was Dr. He Wenping with Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, follow us on the X platform at CDTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.